This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. at the Race to Value, we're on a mission to ensure that everyone has access to quality, affordable health care, regardless of health status, social need, or income. That's the reason why we have this platform to share best practices, democratize key learnings, and highlight those exemplars out there doing the great work to create value-based healthcare transformation. This week, we have two leaders from the United States of Care, a nonprofit organization that's focusing on listening to people's needs, developing policy solutions, and partnering with others to ensure our healthcare system works for everyone. They're at the intersection of people, policy, and politics to really drive people-centered change and harmonize the voices to unite the power of one. So joining us this week is Natalie Davis. Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder for the United States of Care. You know, she's been active in the industry for nearly two decades, shaping and implementing American healthcare policies to improve the lives of people. In 2018, she partnered up with Andy Slavitt to launch the United States of Care. She's someone who's relentless and person-centered approaches to building healthcare solutions. She has a history of building partnerships with organizations and patient advocacy groups and, and really everyday people that work to create positive change in our country's American healthcare system. And joining her is Dr. Venice Haynes, Director of Research and Community Engagement with the United States of Care. She's a social and behavioral scientist with 14 years of public health experience. She's achieved an overarching research agenda in her work. She's been out there addressing social determinants of health and health disparities in underserved and global populations using qualitative and community-based uh, participatory approaches. She's worked on a variety of CDC and NIH-funded projects to address disparities in cancer and other chronic diseases. These are both outstanding individuals. It was such an amazing conversation. We talked a lot about how to really change our American healthcare system, and it all comes down to uniting together in a multifaceted way to drive change through people in our communities and informing policy that can make uh, our future brighter for tomorrow. Definitely don't miss this episode. You want to listen to the whole hour. And I am going to now hand it over to Natalie and Venice as they join us this week in the Race to Value. Well, Natalie and Venice, welcome to the Race to Value. It is so amazing to have you on the show this week. 
this is Natalie. I'm so excited to be here. This is uh, going to be a really fun conversation. Yeah, thank you for having us. This is really something I've been looking forward to. Natalie and I have been talking about it, and, and we're really excited to get into a lot of what we've been hearing. Well, the work that you both do at the United States of Care is all about achieving this vision for a healthcare system that provides people with high quality, personalized care that meets their unique needs at a price that they can afford. And I know so much of our listeners, you know, they got into this work and value-based care transformation or population health or health equity because it was, you know, something that called to them in terms of a altruistic underpinning, why they got into healthcare in comparison to maybe another type of profession. So I wanted, as we start our conversation today, I just wanted to ask you both, maybe if you could, you know, give our listeners a little bit of insight into your background, you know, were there any informative experiences in, in, in your life or your career that made you do the work that you do now? Thanks for asking that. This is Natalie. I will start and then hand it over to Venice. So I came to, I'm the co-founder of United States of Care and the CEO um, and came to healthcare, I think in a, in a pretty different way than a lot of folks, at least in Washington, DC, the policy folks that are here. I really was studying and obsessed with the intersection of society and the individual and how society and the individual impact each other and what that relationship looks like. And as we think about both societal change, as well as how an individual can thrive, to me, those intersections are are so obvious um, and interesting and so important. And I actually came to DC, where I now live with my husband and kids, to be a museum curator because I loved the idea of like, can we show this interaction of the individual with society through art? And I got here and found out really quickly that it was really hard to get a job in DC in some of the most well-known, respected art institutions in the world. And so I had to think through, I was at a time of like, okay, that's not going to work. What, what do I do now? How do I bring my creativity and my entrepreneurial um, drive and my interest in society and the individual? What do I do now? And went to a temp agency and they said, oh, all the stuff you're interested in, anorexia, bulimia, food deserts, depression, that's all healthcare. I was like, oh, I didn't know there was this thing called healthcare. I thought it was just the individual and society and those things manifest in that way. And so that actually is how I started in into this space of healthcare. Um, had some really interesting, um, you know, moments in my career, which you know continued to push me towards the policy lane. Um, I was at actually the National Committee for Quality Assurance, NCQA, writing HEDIS measure specifications when CHIPRA and the ACA passed and was asked to join the Obama administration to stand up a lot of the operationalizing of healthcare.gov throughout the Affordable Care Act. And there I realized where I thought I was going to be a policy wonk. I wasn't. I loved working next to policy wonks who were really thinking about how do you implement, and I loved thinking about how do you implement this to actually make a real impact on people and their health. And then when Andy Slavitt became the administrator for CMS, he asked me to be his kind of right hand, his advisor, and 
there I, I learned how important it was to get out of Washington as a policymaker and go out. And we went across the country for two years to talk to people about the healthcare system and talk to people, patients, providers, reporters, governors, et cetera, entrepreneurs, um, anybody who touched the healthcare system to understand how was policy actually working and and bringing those lessons back to Washington. And um, for me, that really became a part of an obsession of responsive policy. So how do you implement policy well to make a difference? And then how do you make it responsive to the real world? And, and we'll talk more about United States of Care, but you'll hear all of those threads of talking to patients and finding responsive policy and good implementation and thinking about change differently all really led up to the formation of United States of Care. So that's me and my background. Venice, I'll hand it over to you to introduce yourself. I currently serve as the Director of Research and Community Engagement. And I come to this space with a public health background and interesting journey. Um, I guess when I was in undergrad, I, I knew I wanted to go into healthcare and um, just, I, I was a scientific, like a science background. Um, and at the time, right, when somebody says, oh, you're interested in healthcare, your options are to be a doctor or a nurse. And I remember my parents kind of grooming me and, um, you know, really good advisor, so to speak, to kind of groom me to think, oh, why don't you be a doctor? And so that's what I went into my undergrad degree thinking, you know, I wanted to do. And something in me said, well, why don't you kind of get some real world experience? Like, what does it mean to be a doctor? What made me think to do that? I don't know. And so I took some jobs um, in spaces like doctor's offices and hospitals. I was a phlebotomist. I was a lab tech. And I worked closely with doctors just so I could see what their day-to-day -day was like. What am I getting into? What am I going to give up the next four to six to eight years of my life doing, right? And it really allowed me to see exactly the questions that I had. And I remember by the time I graduated undergrad, I was like, man, I'm not really ready to apply for med school. Let me do a little bit more work here. And as I got closer with the physicians that I was working with and the patients, I started to ask some very like some bigger questions, right? Why am I seeing the same patients over and over again? Why aren't they getting any better? Every three months, these same people are coming in to get their blood work and their lab tests this and their prescription adjustments that, and it just became this endless cycle, right? But they talking to them, we developed a rapport and I was just hearing about all of these other issues that were coming up. Like, well, what is their home life like? Why is that? What is their what is the impact on the surroundings for why they're not getting better? At the time, I did not know that was public health, but it was enough questions for me to start to really open my eyes and see how the doctors were really dictated and forced to have to treat their patients a certain way, what the difference between for-profit and not-for-profit hospital systems required of doctors, how this endless cycle just became this endless cycle and rinse and repeat. And I was like, I'm not quite sure I want to de dedicate this much of my life to being a physician if I can't treat patients like I want and need to and see what their needs are. Long story short, I was introduced to public health and realized that the bigger questions I was having were around social drivers and bigger public health, population health questions. But it started to build this thread of really listening and paying attention to what people were saying, what they were calling for, what they were asking for to be different. And so by the time I, I, I kind of took a detour, instead of going to med school, I got into public health, 
People pushed me to get my PhD. I was like, oh, I'm not really ready yet. So went back to work in the field to figure out what I wanted to hone in on. And it was then I got introduced to um, Dr. Kamara Jones, who introduced me to the intersections of racism and social determinants of health and population health, but also listening for and how to do true community-based participatory research. That was the foundation of the rest of my public health career and actually what brought me to um, United States of Care. I will skip all of the details and my experiences in this space, but I will also say, and those um, those experiences, I ran from policy as long as I possibly could. It was the politics that I didn't really want to get into, but in the back of my mind, I knew it was health policy that would actually make the difference in what people were calling for and where change would actually happen. And so when United States of Care popped up on a very opportune time when I was um, applying for jobs after my PhD, I was like, oh my gosh, here's an organization that gets it. They're putting people first. We've been saying this for years. Let's go, let's do this. I get to do what I've been doing all this time for a policy organization. Okay, throw my cancer um, research is stuff away. Let's go for the juggernaut. Let's go for the bigger picture. And I'd like to say the rest is history, but we're still building it. Well, I love this ambitious goal that the United States of care has to achieve universal access to quality and affordable health care for all Americans. You know, it, it really, the work that you're doing is really trying to find ways to harmonize all of the voices in our communities and the broader healthcare ecosystem towards the reform of, of health care. And you're bringing together stakeholders from various backgrounds, including healthcare experts, patients, policymakers, advocates to develop and implement a practical bipartisan solution to improving the healthcare system. And you're fostering dialogue and collaboration and conducting research and advocating for policies that enhance access, lower costs, improve healthcare outcomes, and, and really finding that common ground across the party lines and the ideological divides to address what I think is one of the biggest challenges of our generation to reform the, the healthcare system. And, you know, it couldn't be more needed right now. We have such a highly polarized and tribal society. We seem to be unable to coalesce around those tenants of lower cost, better care quality, improved outcomes, and reducing disparities, even though value-based care, it, it should seemingly be a bipartisan issue. And I think part of that reason, and I love how you illuminated this and some of the research that you've done, but you know, value-based care is a movement. We haven't effectively engaged patients in the transformation process. And we created so much confusion about what value-based care even means. And, you know, your findings showed that when offered an alternative by a four to one margin, I mean, people do favor a model that compensates providers for improving overall health and delivering superior care and coordinating patient care. And, but the, the issue is no one understands that term value-based care what it really means and you know so i wanted to ask you both you know just given this significant misunderstanding of value-based care and the need for patient engagement and healthcare transformation how is the us of care working to bridge that gap and clarify what value really means for the average american and is now the time to maybe shift the healthcare lexicon from value-based care to something more like patient first care or quality focused care yeah, this you laid all of that out so well. So United States of Care is really sits at the intersection of people, 
policy and politics. We uh, have gone out across the country, talked to thousands and thousands and thousands of people to really find out across demographics, what do people want in terms of a healthcare system that would meet their needs, their families' needs, and their pocketbooks? We often think, like you said, Eric, that people in this country do not agree on anything, let alone healthcare. And when you think about big debates that happen when Washington or states are trying to change healthcare, we can, it can feel very tribal. And what we've done as an organization is gone out and talked to people, I call it without lipstick on a pig, we have gone out and just listened to people. We have found what do people naturally bring up when you talk about healthcare and healthcare experiences. We don't talk about policy. We talk about what they need and 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 what they feel and what words they use to really build what we've called an agenda for reform for the whole country. You know, Solutions for Care, which you can find on our website, has four goals that people agree on what they need out of the healthcare system. And then the 12 solutions that we know, again, across demographics, people want to change the healthcare system. They are very targeted um, and they're very specific. And we know because of all the research we did that if we make an improvement on these in the right way with the right focus, they'll also improve equity. And so people across demographics believe that they want uh, the certainty they can afford their health care. Number two, they want dependable coverage as their life changes. Number three, they want personalized care, which means getting what they need, when and how they need it. And number four, they want a healthcare system that's easy to understand and navigate. The fourth one is usually when people chuckle because it sounds like it's probably the hardest given how complex our healthcare system is. But you'll notice uh, when as you get to know the organization, we picked all of those words because we heard it from people. Um, we could have said people can afford their healthcare, but we use the word certainty because when you talk to people, it is that emotional anxiety that they feel with the uncertainty of being able to afford their healthcare and the impact the uncertainty has as they engage the healthcare system. And so throughout all of this, Venice is so attuned to people and the language they use, the emotions they have, that's how we write, that's how we pass policies. So we have this United Solutions for Care, we are always talking to community, um, and that's what Venice heads up. We also are out running state campaigns and federal campaigns to meet these targeted needs that people have. Um, and we have a what we call an innovation lab where we are talking to people across the healthcare system to come up with new solutions because we know as a country we don't always have those, especially with equity baked in. So how does that bring us to value-based care? Because I can tell you Nobody brings that up when you ask them about what they want out of a future healthcare system. But when we looked at all of these together, they comprehensively cannot be done in a fee-for-service model. People cannot get care in their community is one example. They can't have support as a caregiver, caring for a loved one at home. They, they can't get all of the experiences they want. A healthcare system is easy to navigate in fee-for-service. And in fact, Venice can tell you about people feel like they are going through with a machine of fee-for-service. They, of course, just don't call it that. So when we looked at these this agenda for reform, we said, okay, we know value-based care has to enable this. And we saw at the same time, there is a real change in Congress and in state houses of people who understand accountable care or value-based care or models. 
they, there are a lot of members that have moved on, there's staff that moved on. And so there's this real opportunity and real need, honestly, to bring new leaders along on this very complex issue. And without that, I think there's a real risk of the movement hitting some real brick walls, honestly. And so we said, all right, what's United States of Care's role in this? And classic to us. It's how do people think about this? How do we bring them along? How do we bring politicians along to understand not the the concepts, but what this means for their voters? Because we know for a politician to take on a new issue, they not they need to understand how this helps them live out why their voters sent them to their, their position of power. So that's the role that we're taking and really wanting to help move this really important, you know, movement, like you said, away from how we've been talking about it, which is how do we pay providers? How do we improve very specific or, you know, outcomes? How do we pay differently? How do we save taxpayer dollars? All the stuff that actually voters, patients, the general public really don't like about when we talk about health reform. Um, so that's how the organization came to it. And Venice can talk to you about the research, a lot of the findings. And then, like you said, Eric, what does this actually mean for how we keep the movement going? So Venice, I'll hand it to you and you can jump in with your, your expertise and findings. Sure. Thanks, Natalie. So it's been an interesting journey to this space. And, and while we are um, putting out our findings for this research that we, we did a deeper dive in um, this year, there's been a drumbeat around it, particularly as we um, listen for how people talk about things, as Natalie mentioned. And one of those drumbeats is th that we've been hearing is people want to have more whole person care, whatever that means for them. There's more to me than just spending 15 minutes in the doctor's office and I'm walking away from a prescription. It's almost like I need you to kind of see the whole me, how I'm coming to this doctor's office, literally how I got here and what I have to go home to and some of my cultural backgrounds or there's more to me than this prescription that you're about to hand me that I'm, you know, the take two pills and call me in the morning concept. And so when we started to get into um, our, our value-based care research, and as Natalie mentioned, like we did find that our unique space in this is let's understand a little bit more how people talk about this or how they come to understand it. We were very thoughtful about that when we were crafting our instruments for the research, right? And so that factored a lot into literally the methodological approaches that we took, starting with focus groups and leading into surveys and then finally, you know, a remesh um, refinement exercise. And it really looked at, at what and how people were talking about things, right? And so we knew those that are steeped in this space know that, you know, okay, well, well everything they're describing is value-based care, but, you know, Eric, to your original point, how people understand that could be very, very, very different. And so when we put it out to them, how would you, like, what is your support for a healthcare approach? And we didn't say system to not raise flags as we're about to just completely overhaul everything, but a new approach where we prioritize quality over quantity, where doctors treated you with, with more whole person approaches. Of course, they're going to say they approach that more from, uh, or appreciate that or want to be part of that more than the fee-for-service approach. And we were careful how we frame that in terms of paying for per service that you get. Um, because 
We also know that people are very put off and aggravated by the greed that is the healthcare system. It's almost synonymous. I think we open just about every community conversation with what are the first things that come to mind when you hear the term healthcare. Most, I will say, 9.5 times out of 10, it's some comment around money. Um, and they just feel like the healthcare system is to take from them, not to give back to them. And so I think that is a lot of the thought behind why we saw this preference by four to one margin over for value-based care, quote unquote, um, over fee for service, because that's what they've been calling for. They want to see something other than they want to see themselves at the top of it over money, um, which I think has been a lot of the underlying cause and, and disdain that people have had around this. Regarding like the national language change movement, um, Natalie alluded to this, but it's where people in policy and politics start to intersect, right? If you want to garner some support for it, you do have to, at some point, listen and pay attention to what the people are saying or what they're calling for. And that's why language matters so very much and finding the language that is resonant. And so, um, this is kind of the, the really tedious, but also exciting part of the work. And that's really trying to wade through that commonality of language, what people understand and can resonate with in their daily lives. And then what policymakers and healthcare decision makers and language they can adopt to be able to reach those people. And you can start to come more toward a consensus because I really believe everybody wants the same thing underneath it all, but the approach and how we talk about it is different. And so if we can coalesce and come together on some common language, we can probably get some more traction and some more movement about what we're talking about here. So um, I think that's what's really, really exciting and one of the biggest takeaways of this research we did this year. Well, you know, language really does matter. And at the United States of Care, you've been very intentional in facilitating community conversations research to provide a fuller picture of how people across the country experience healthcare. And that work provides deep insights into the pain points and priorities of people across the nation. It it tells an important story about the needs of communities. And the storytelling project that, that you oversee is called Voices of Real Life, and it's a vehicle to galvanize healthcare experts, patients, policymakers, and advocates around this human-centered focus that's foundational to a business model for value-based care. And, you know, it reminds me, you know, this value movement, it's not unlike a, a social movement, you know, like for civil rights or gay marriage. It requires a story to galvanize people to change. And that power of the story, you know, cuts through the business noise and political rhetoric to re reaffirm the moral imperative and providing universal access to quality and affordable health care as a fundamental human right, you know, not a privilege. And, you know, movements, you know, are led by effective storytelling and, you know, it can revitalize communities of people. It, you know, it reminds me of that, you know, Native American proverb, you know, tell me the facts and I'll learn, tell me the truth and I'll believe, but tell me a story and it will live in my heart forever. And, you know, we've seen great thinkers and, you know, history, you know, Carl Jung and, you know, Joseph Campbell that recognized the power of stories to human beings and, and how important that was to, you know, in their work, like, you know, collective unconsciousness or the, the monomyth, you know, for, for Campbell and, and many others. So, you know, I'm just thinking as we think about the power of the story, I'd be really interested if you could share some of the more compelling or impactful stories that you've encountered and the Voices of Real Life Project and, and how that influenced your work in achieving patient-first care for all. 
Well, I'll say it's like a humbling honor to have a question geared towards United States of Care preempted with everything, all those amazing movements and leaders that you just said. That was pretty cool. I'll do a, a short one because Venice is in the field and talking to folks every day and lives this through throughout her PhD career. I mean, amazing stuff. You know, the one that I will say that sticks out to me is a finding that I kind of obsess over and still trying to figure out what to do, which is people see themselves, they see that the system is broken for sure. Um, but it's so broken. They actually just want you to make small changes. We use targeted because they're afraid that if you do something big, the whole system is going to crash down or it's going to be worse for them. But in that people still feel, and I think if your listeners can sit themselves down as a, and listen to this moment as like a patient or a person or a caregiver, people also feel like they uniquely suck at healthcare. So when I started up this work before we handed it off to Venice to really grow this, I would talk to folks and they would, we would have five questions that we were asking people just really at the beginning of understanding and finding themes. And people would say, Natalie, I'm really excited to talk to you, but my story is kind of unique because I'm either too rich or I'm too poor. I'm either too sick or I'm too healthy. I'm either too smart or too stupid to like do this healthcare thing well. And so, you know, I was at a kitchen table in San Diego talking to uh, a woman that was on our voices and she brought together different people in her community, however she defined that. And I was sitting there listening to these folks that were neighbors. That's how she could divide, you know, define her community. And they all started telling these stories that were unique to them, but they also started hearing shared experience in what the other person was sharing and wanting to support each other. There was one woman who said, you know, I have to get these MRIs often for my condition. The doctor is so rude to me. I cry every time I go, but what else am I going to do? I guess I just have to keep going. And she was kind of tearing up and like all of these other, they happen to all be women reached over and literally put their hand on her hand and said, don't like, we will help you find somebody else to go to. We had no idea you were going through this. You don't have to see this provider. And so for me, as I think about a social movement, like you're talking about part of what we need to do and we do as an organization is for everybody to see themselves in the change that is needed and using their experiences to help drive that. You need policymakers to hear a groundswell from people saying this isn't working for all of us. But right now we have a, a moment where people still kind of see it as an individual failure experience and not systemic. And so it's a finding that I'm obsessed over because that's what we need to do as a country in order to really drive change. But it's also just so humanizing when you watch and hear people kind of share in ways that we don't usually and finding that kind of commonality and shared shared experience and support for each other. I mean, it's so we don't do that a lot in this country. And so being able to to do that outside of policy is amazing. Venice, how, what's what's the story you would share? Oh my gosh. <laughs> to pick a story is ridiculously difficult. Um I, I think some of the things that stick out to me, and it's not necessarily it, to to Natalie's point, it's not one story because when you sit down and you listen to somebody talk about 
all that they have to go through to get to a doctor's appointment. And let's just say you go to a focus group and somebody shares a very similar story. And then across from that person is like, oh my gosh, I thought it was just me. Or, you know, they add more to, yeah. And by the time you get to the doctor's office, you have to wait for a whole nother hour. And if the doctors um, pass their time, then I just missed my transportation window and I have to find an alternative way to get back home or I have to go pick up my kids by a certain time. And the slippery slope that this creates all just in the name of either trying to stay healthy and or deal with the problem that they've been put off. It really is people think they're going it alone, but they're not. And I, I want to highlight the beauties of doing the work that we do and having these focus groups and community conversations is literally the sense of community that we bring, like bringing people together, um, talking to each other and hearing each other's stories. And that light bulb goes off like, oh my gosh, I don't feel so alone or wow, I feel so empowered that you actually listen to me. I thought I was forgotten about. Coming from South Carolina, we've been in some of the ruralest places of South Carolina and hearing the stories and things that women go through. Um, for example, we're, we're working on a, a big project on um, Black maternal health and how it is normal for them to drive 50 minutes to an hour to prenatal visits only for their provider to be at another clinic that day and they didn't get any notification. And so they wasted a day or childcare or took off work and then have to do it all again. That's one of the ones that come, you know, top of mind. So the stories really are endless, but sadly, not unique. And that's a problem, I think, and, and watch people grapple with very big life changes, people that want to or have to get married because it would mean they would have health insurance, even if they don't want to, or if they're in love with somebody else that can't afford it. They have to make major life-altering decisions just to have health care. And then if they don't, how life-altering a illness or disease can be if they do have it, but it's not sufficient, or they end up going bankrupt or have to take out a second mortgage on the house. Or again, the possibilities, the, the stories are endless in, in what people have to go through, but it, it does become more and more humanizing and empowering when people um, figure out that they're not by themselves and there's actually someone or a group of people um, or multiple people working on the issue and actually listening to their perspectives. And something that's so interesting, Eric, you know, we, just hearing all of that from me and then from Venice, one of the th ones that Venice that I love to point out on LinkedIn or Twitter or to in speeches is we often hear people are quote unquote satisfied with healthcare. And then Venice and I go out and we're like, I don't know who these people are, like who is actually satisfied with their healthcare. And I remember getting a poll back where we had, had a criteria to understand, like, click here if you're satisfied with your insurance, click here if you're not. And we, we use that to understand the demographic of the person and, and you know, build a, a, a room. And I saw that, I'm like, who are these people clicking satisfied? Like, I want a focus group with just them to understand their satisfaction. So we did that. And Venice, I'm gonna actually turn it over to you. You tell about our finding on satisfaction because I think it's fascinating. So the people that were satisfied with their healthcare were satisfied because they just had it. 
they spend so much time finding a healthcare setup that works for them that this kind of goes back to what Natalie was mentioning about like, oh gosh, please don't touch my healthcare. Don't, don't upset anything. Cause I spent so much time trying to craft this setup that works for me for now until it doesn't. The alternative, right? The reason they say they're satisfied is because the alternative is to not have it. And so to have it means, okay, well, I'm, I am among the, the lucky ones to be able to um, have it and have a doctor that I like. And so it's really kind of sad that that bar is so very low compared to what people are calling for and uh, what we're aspiring for the healthcare system to be. Why can't satisfied be, I haven't needed to go to the doctor or I only go to the doctor to make sure like all of my preventative um, services are are done and I'm doing my screenings and I'm doing my checkups and you know, I have everything I need. I feel supported at home. I'm not suffering from food insecurity. I have all of the nutritional components that I need. I'm not um, saddled with prescription um, drug prices that are forcing me to decide if I'm going to eat or take my medicine so I can live. Their version of satisfied is I have insurance and I have a doctor that I like, maybe. And that's kind of it. And so we have, we, it just, it's very eye opening in terms of the road that we have paved, um, which was also really, really something we had in the back of my, of our minds when we were taking on this value-based care work this past year. Well, it really is a sobering truth, you know, to realize that the journey in healthcare is just such a daunting and heartbreaking ordeal. And, you know, the cost of treatment is, it's not just measured in dollars, but, you know, in the toll it takes on individuals and families. But, you know, let's talk about the dollars for a minute. I mean, you you mentioned, you know, both of you uh, several times about affordability and United States of Care had a poll, you know, 42% of voters have foregone health insurance in the past year. 41% of those under 30 have opted not to seek medical treatment in the last year. I mean, we know uh, healthcare costs are the number one reason for personal bankruptcy. And I know your organization is uh, specifically focused on lowering prescription drug costs, eliminating out-of-pocket costs for basic healthcare services. And, you know, one of your initiatives is to expand coverage through a multi-state public option. This is a government-regulated insurance plan that's privately run and made available to individuals and small businesses and nonprofits. And the public insurance option allows the state or federal government to ensure that prices are reasonable while benefits and care remain high quality. And, you know, those who choose to participate in that public option plan would pay premiums just as they would with the traditional private plan, but without all the inflated overhead and administrative costs of private insurers. And this concept of a multi-state public option, it's an intriguing approach to healthcare reform. And I wanted to ask you both if you could explain, you know, how this model works in more detail and, you know, how it aims to make healthcare more affordable while ensuring quality. Yeah, I mean, you're you're absolutely right to call out affordability. I mean, anytime we are talking to the general public about an issue, and it doesn't matter where we enter, if we are talking about insurance, if we're talking about maternal health, if we are talking about mental health or caregiving, the first thing that people talk about is money and whether that's they can't afford it or they think someone's making money off of them and the healthcare system is getting richer. It's affordability, like it is the number one issue that comes up regardless of our entry point and conversation. And that's how people experience the healthcare system. 
So this is where our work gets super fun and we call it people-centered policy where we take what we hear from people that affordability is the number one issue, no matter what issue we're talking about. And we go out and we change legislation and we change regulations and we stay for implementation if we are, um, you know, if we're welcome to. And so what you're talking about with the public option is there's a lot of levers to attack the issue of affordability. Um, and when we think about affordability, we need to be smart, of course, about the federal deficit. We need to be smart, of course, about how all the healthcare system interacts. We need to center people's costs. And we know that everything is passed on to the consumer, though we're seeing employers feel like they can't even pass costs on to employees anymore because the cost, they're just people are at a breaking point of being able to afford more care or afford more for their care. And so we have a lot of different levers that we're looking at when we think about making healthcare more affordable, whether that is increasing the uh, availability, like you said, of insurance for people who can't afford it through something like a public option. And we have, um, you use the word multi-state, but it's it's actually different legislation passed in multiple states, um, not necessarily like a compact across states, but you know we're, we've been a big part of making sure that there are more affordable options for people uh, through public option. We're also really taking a look that states have, have done, and, and we're seeing a lot of momentum at the federal level of looking at costs that are passed on to consumers that are hidden fees from hospitals. Um, and that's really important to think through how that impacts people's pockets. So there's a lot of different levers to think through when it comes to making healthcare more affordable. I just mentioned a couple, but we're seeing, you know, one of the things that we are um, as part of our theory of change at United States of Care is being a part of change at the state level, because we think those can be models for um, national change at the federal level. So, you know, value-based care is another way to bring down costs um, and ideally a way that even patients have less out-of-pocket costs for their health care. So like you said, public option is just one of those. It's it's a place where we've led as an organization and we're excited to see that momentum and in any way we can sh highlight those to other states or bring those up to the federal level as, as examples of, of levers of change. One thing that really excites me about this is the the equity component. Um, so while it in it does increase competition um, in the market. It, it increases access as well. When you think about cost, a lot of times we think about like the out-of-pocket cost, but the cost to the system, right? If people don't have access to care or uh, coverage, they often, we hear like back to the statistic, 42% go without seeking care because they can't afford it which obviously drives up emergency room costs. And we hear time and time again how, about how people only go to the hospital or only go to the doctor when they absolutely have to, which most of the time is too late. And most of the time is more expensive than if they had gone earlier. And so we've kind of look at it from a, a preventative standpoint, why not lower costs from the beginning and give people access so that they can be able to seek out things earlier versus compiling problems and um, more costs in the system later. So um, I just kind of wanted to point that out from an equity standpoint. Well, you know, I think if affordability is the number one issue on top of mind for most people, dependability is probably a close second. I mean, if we're going if we're going to reform American healthcare, I mean, we have to ensure coverage dependability. And it's not just about equal access to care. It's about 
righting the wrongs of health disparities and creating a society where every person has an equal opportunity for a healthy life and dependable healthcare coverage is an anchor in those storms of life. You know, it provides individuals and families the peace of mind that their health and well-being will be safeguarded in times of need. And, you know, marginalized and minoritized communities are often the most impacted by lack of dependable health care coverage. And I know the United States of Care has been actively working to expand eligibility for public programs, providing low-cost public option that we just talked about, allowing people to use tax cre- tax credits to get coverage outside of their employer. I mean, this this is such a challenge right now, especially with we see droves of people now being you know disenrolled from Medicaid with the unwinding of the pandemic era continuous coverage rules. I mean, I was reading that you know more than nine million people have been disenrolled from Medicaid determinations just in these last few months and. You know, between unexpected life changes, disrupting coverage dependability, the failure of states to expand Medicaid programs and these redeterminations, you know, it seems like it's people of color and kids and, you know, people who don't speak English that are often hit the hardest. So I wanted to just see if you both could talk about this important aspect of coverage dependability, why it's so crucial, especially in the context of health disparities and and provide some more detail for our listeners about what the United States of care is doing to ensure equitable access to healthcare? I can start again, time and time and time again. These, this goes back to the stories. I think about people that work on contract that may or may not have healthcare tied to it. Let's just think, to like take a six-month contract. Well, when that contract is up and they decide not to renew it, then what? I think about people we talk to that work in the gig economy, people that are entrepreneurs or want to start a small business, but they can't afford providing health care for their employees. I think about women who are pregnant or about to have a baby, and they try to work all kinds of ways, you know, all the way up until they deliver, don't want to take any time off because they want to make sure they have enough coverage or worry about their employer dropping them, which we know they are not supposed to do, but um, some type of repercussion on um, on them because they wanted to have a baby. Somebody wanting to branch out and start their own business, but can't because they might have a terminal illness or they support a family or of someone that has a terminal illness. It just goes on and on and on and on. And yes, you're right. People who are historically marginalized by the, by the healthcare system suffer far more greatly from these scenarios. And so, yes, we, we do have some work to do because especially when you have states and with the pandemic unwinding and you've got states that are not expanding Medicaid and you're just, it's like you're running out of options to bridge that gap. And that, but then again, it's the cycle that goes right back to cost. What's that going to end us, end up costing us in the long run? And so um, I will kind of turn it over to Natalie and to talk a little bit about, you know, how we're approaching this as an organization and ways that we can see, you know, tying some of these uh, levers and solutions together. Yeah, it's funny when you were talking, Venice, I had a flashback to a really impactful moment that I had when I was uh, working for CMS to implement the um, healthcare.gov. And once we got it up and running, I was I had the honor of going to a call center and hearing representatives help enroll people in coverage, often for like the first time in their life. And I remember getting watching, you know, sitting with my headphones on and just listening in and hearing a representative talk to the person enrolling 
okay, here's the section on your annual income. What is your annual income? And the person was like, I don't, that doesn't work for me that way. Like I, I do, you know, UPS during holiday uh, season. I'm a contractor, you know, roofing during the summer, you know, I piece together stuff in a good year. It's very complicated because that means I'm getting a lot of jobs and, it, you know, then watching a call center rep who had same lived experiences, be able to help the person suss out, okay, here's, here's how I think about it. Here's how we can think about your annual salary, but make sure you don't do it too high because if you do and you get too much APTC credits, tax credits, like you're going to have to give it back. So like, Oh, let's, let's do this juggle together. And for me, it was like such a moment of like, the people writing this policy don't and the implementation and the building of the technology to help people enroll don't necessarily have the lived experiences of the people that were enrolling in the coverage. And if we did, or if we listened loudly, or if we prioritize the right thing, um, we would have asked differently, right? Like we would have given a calculator on how to think about it or help people understand or asked like here, you can submit the information based on, you know, your gig work. So just Venice, when you were talking about that, it just brought me right back to sitting in there. And it was like another moment for me of like implementation is policy is nothing if it's not implemented well. And I will say the Affordable Care Act is amazing and healthcare.gov is amazing and it saved lives and young people enrolled, but you know, all these details matter. As we think about the work that United States of Care does, and again, our magic of taking this and changing, you know, and, and using our political and our policy prowess to change the healthcare system, one thing that comes to mind for me of dependable coverage means that the care you need and you've been told is going to be there when you need it. And right now, our healthcare system, some of the very core tenets of preventive services is at risk. And so for folks that don't know, and I'm finding that a lot of folks don't know, that there was a court case recently out of Texas that has found unconstitutional the coverage of free preventive services for 151 million Americans. So if you are listening to this podcast and you have health insurance through your employer, you are part of the 151 million Americans across the country who your free preventive services that all of us have come to rely on, that you've depended on, Eric, to use that word, are at risk. And right now it's in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. We anticipate this is going to go to the Supreme Court in 2025. Um, and it may be found that it's unconstitutional for insurers to cover these with no out-of-pocket costs. And so United States of Care, in terms of defending the dependability through preventive services, is working at the state level to make sure the court remedies this. We filed amicus briefs. We're working with others to make sure every time I'm on a podcast or in the media or on stage, I'm talking about this because I don't think people know this is happening. And it gets to the very crux of what Venice says is people, it's time and time again, we prove to people what you have in healthcare isn't dependable. It can go away with a, you know, a judge in Texas making a ruling that then impacts 151 million Americans, a very large percentage of those of children. 
So taking our listening work into action, that's a, it's a great example. And one that if folks want to know, we have, a, it's called Braidwood versus Becerra. We have a, a resource hub on our website to make sure people understand what's at risk. And, and you all should know that we're working on it every day, but this is going to take some collective action for the people that really understand the importance of preventive care. Once this, this kind of moves along the court system, though we hope we hope it just goes away, uh, but you know we're we're concerned that that won't be the case, and it will go to the Supreme Court in 2025. Well, you know, it seems like we have so much work to be done to assume that healthcare is more affordable and dependable. But as I understand, your organization is also focused on making it more personalized as well. And you know, in in the fee for, in the fee for service healthcare model, it does seem like we have a one size fits all approach to healthcare. I mean, we have all this infrastructure and machinery around you know transactional encounters. That you know, we don't really look at the health of populations, let alone the health of the individual. And we have to really think about, you know, as we reimagine our healthcare delivery system, how do we have a more customized approach to ensure the best outcomes? And I know your organization is out there providing support to caregivers, improving mental health coverage, enhancing maternal and newborn care, making care more convenient. Uh, ensuring people have equitable access to care virtually. And it really comes down to meeting people where they are and addressing their unique healthcare needs. And it's about bringing consumerism to healthcare, which has been lacking, you know, in this model that we've seen in fee for service. And it's also about the creation of a well-designed approach to virtual care and, you know, including, you know, telehealth and re remote monitoring and other digital forms of communication as a way to enhance personalization while also breaking down those, long-standing barriers to access and but if we're not careful about that you know if we shift virtual care you know too aggressively you know we may neglect some of those people and communities who were behind and facing barriers to access even before the pandemic so i wanted to ask you both if you could discuss how your organization is helping people get the personalized care they need and and how does this initiative align with the scalability of virtual care solutions that can enhance access to underserved communities I love this question. And, you know, as you were talking, Eric, I was thinking about, you know, as you were rattling off those solutions, you know, I want to remind the audience that all of what you see, all 12 and those specific ones that you just read off were literally what we heard people say. This was not what US of Care came up with. These are the solutions that people prioritize. So that's just kind of goes to show you what is um, top of mind uh, for people and where we continue to lean in and press in on. So it's been really interesting, especially this last year. I can't really say enough how much that we cannot treat healthcare as a one size fits all approach. Everybody has unique needs at different times, which goes back to, you know, the dependability conversation that we just had. And we cannot assume that everybody needs the same type of healthcare ongoing, right? And so when I think about some of the work that we've been doing in uh, Colorado over the summer, kind of on, on the heels of the conversation around public option, um, Colorado is one of the first to pass it. And they just recently passed legislation that requires what they call culturally responsive networks, meaning networks that only not only provide public option, but other health care plans. 
incorporate more details about the background of the providers, the services they provide. What do I mean by that? What providers in this network are able to speak to needs of people that have limited English proficiency? If they are deaf or hard of hearing, do you have translation services available to them? Do they have providers that see and specialize in the LGBTQ plus community that are specific to or culturally competent or practice cultural humility when it comes to seeking Native uh, or seeing Native American patients, things like that. And so we did a deep dive to understand what that actually looks like and means for people. Because as our country is growing increasingly more diverse, the healthcare system is not a accommodating to that, right? And so uh, back to people that are historically marginalized, they have to make certain things fit into a healthcare system that was not designed for them, which is an added burden and layer to all of the other things that we just got through uh, outlining when it comes to seeking healthcare. And so you wonder why people don't do it because if they don't have someone that can actually speak to those unique needs, what's the point? And that's literally what we have heard from people. On the word on on uh, a word on the value based care, we're starting to really hear. We did a lot of this work during the pandemic um, among older adults, people with um, lower incomes, and into the equity component. You know, we were trying to be very cognizant of what inequities virtual care might exacerbate, and some of the things that we might need to consider and think about in making recommendations that to ensure that that does not happen. Once again, we cannot assume that this uh, virtual care is a one-size-fits-all, will solve all of everyone's problems. Unique needs require unique conversations, require unique interactions. And yes, it is great and it works for those that it works for, but for those that it doesn't work for, for a variety of reasons, they might not have a safe place to take the call, stable broadband access or internet access to be able to have a quality call. They might not be able to or be very well versed in interacting with technology. I know it's 2023, that seems very far-fetched, but you would be surprised the number of people that have named technology as a very significant barrier to engaging with virtual care. We hear it time and time again with older adults. They really value and want to maintain that personal connection where the doctor actually puts hands on them and examines them and looks them in their eyes. And that technology barrier just is, it, it doesn't do it for them, right? And so we just have to be cognizant and like you said, Eric, meet people where they are. It's not a cliche statement. You really do have to consider that, yes, while technology is great and works when it works, it doesn't work for everybody. And we have to be able to be flexible enough to be able to provide care virtually where the circumstances provide it, but also be able to pivot and remain personalized if it means there's a hybrid approach. Or we heard one in one of our solutions uh, tables with communities, is there a place that people can go where they can get assistance with their virtual care visit that helps them navigate the technology that might help them take the vitals and relay that to the doctor on the other end. There's all kinds of solutions, but the, the name of the game is to be nimble, meet people where they are, hear what they're asking for. And that there, I think, is the, the solution to making sure that virtual care and how care is delivered is equitable and remains personalized. 
And Eric, what's so interesting about this, this section of personalized care is we think, you know, we talked about affordable coverage, we talked about dependable coverage. Those, I know people who are working in the value-based care movement believe strongly in those, but when we think about like the actual levers that more, you know, move to accountable care has, the place where we find that the experience, because when you talk to people about value-based care without using those words, when you talk to them about that, it really comes down to the experience that they have. And that shows up in these sections, this part that we're you're talking to us about right now of like personalized care, and it shows up an understandable and not easy to navigate healthcare system. And, you know, everything that Venice is, is kind of talking about kind of can be wrapped up again as we think about the audience and the solutions they're building or that they're what they're how they're delivering care to people is that the experience that people want is not an assembly line. You know, we have a great quote from somebody in a focus group who's like, current healthcare system and I'm in a high school cafeteria and they're just slapping healthcare on my plate and telling me to move on. Like if there's not a better way to describe fee for service, I can't think of it. And and all of these ideas of like better maternal care, better virtual care, making care more convenient, better mental health care, it's like People want that embedded in the way that they engage the healthcare system. They that's the experience that they want. That's how they talk about personalized care. And you know, the part that really resonates when we talk to them about virtual care, again, without using those terms, is people want to have a doctor that focuses on their whole body, not just a body part. They want this idea, like Venice said, of quality over quantity. And they kind of actually use those words. They they understand that a better quality experience would mean they have more time with their doctor, that again, they'd be seen as a whole body. They wouldn't have pills pushed on them, that the doctor would engage them in their own healthcare journey. And, and they don't have to spend time repeating their medical history over and over again, that they don't have to drive from one place to another. Like I can picture you know, and if if done well, a way you can deliver healthcare through a value-based model, focusing on outcomes, et cetera, is a way people think about personalized care. Again, we do it a disservice that when we call it something that they don't like, which is the word value. And what's interesting is, I think Venice mentioned this, when they hear the word value, they think of like bargain basement. They think of somebody's valuing my healthcare and probably because I don't trust the healthcare system, they're valuing it lower um, than I would want. Like the last thing I want in healthcare is like the the grocery store brand bacon. You know, like that's how somebody described the word is this idea of like they want personalized care and we keep saying the word value. And those two things are in complete conflict when you talk to folks. So I'm sorry to say this on your podcast that has the word value in the name, <laughs> but it is it is the interesting disconnect that we're finding with people who are part of the policy and the delivery and really thinking about the ins and outs of this change in our healthcare system and meeting people where they are and 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 what they want, which is personalized care, understandable healthcare system, which can be done, you know, through a change in our healthcare system. Well, it seems like we do such a terrible job in healthcare communicating, you know, what we do and and in allowing our communities and uh, patients and caregivers to understand what they can do to best navigate their health and, and really navigate the system. You know, I, I would agree. I, I think value-based care has not landed the way it should have. And, you know, that's a fault that we, we, we need to, to rectify. And, you know, we also need to think about how do we move away from, you know, having such a heavily regulated massively subsidized industry that creates all these structural distortions that, you know, because of the systemic flaw of the design of healthcare in and of itself, 
You know, it doesn't allow a wave of consumerism to disrupt care delivery. If this was another industry, we, we'd we be well on our way to, you know, delivering a more affordable, competitive, higher quality, more equitable system. And we need this much needed wave of consumerism, but we have to think about you know, this complexity of the system and, and how that stifles innovation and creates this lack of understanding. And, you know, that in turn leads to th this information asymmetry between patients and providers and creates poor health literacy and ultimately non-compliance to care plans, which uh, creates poor outcomes. I mean, we have to think about how do we empower those patients as consumers and make our system more understandable and easier to navigate. And, you know, that would include, you know, things like increasing uh, transparency and healthcare costs, you know, making patient navigators uh, widely available to patients to guide them through the complexities of the healthcare landscape and you know, fostering a more informed and engaged patient consumer population. I mean, if we're going to change healthcare, it has to happen, you know, I think at the grassroots level, it, it can't just be policy that's promulgated from legislators and, and you know, with the uh, in, information from the system, it has to also include the communities that we serve. So, you know, I'd love to get your take on, you know, how do we foster a more informed and engaged patient consumer population? I mean, are there specific initiatives or, or strategies that you're working on that are showing promise and achieving that goal? Yeah, it's a great question, Eric, and it's it's what we think we do uniquely well, actually, or in the place that we occupy and call for others to come with. I mean, like you said, is it is it the healthcare system is broken or is it operating exactly the way it was built and that in itself, which is broken? Um, and we would say that whatever answer you have there, it's because we haven't put patients at the center and we haven't gone out and really asked them and really delivered on what we hear from them and need to be able to allow for communities and people to understand the healthcare system, but understand it from where they're sitting and be able to give feedback, whether that's to us, you know, a, a delivery solution, whether that's to policy, it has to start with listening and then they have to be involved the whole way. And so as we pioneer people-centered change, as we call it, and document that and the process and how people, other organizations and policymakers can do more of this. That is exactly why we want to make this kind of way we do it, why we want to put that out into the world so more people, policymakers and, and entrepreneurs and providers and others can do that. Because I do think it's what people, I think change makers want that. Um, but I think it's changing the paradigm of of change. We we don't have a better, we, we'd laugh internally because we don't have a better way of saying it. It's like, we need to change the way we do change. Like this, this, this is not working. You know, one of the things that when you're talking about consumerism, it makes me think back to, especially at the very beginning, although Venice may continue to ask these questions, we asked people in the five questions we asked, which was like, I wish healthcare worked like blank so I could have blank. And mostly people would answer stuff like, I wish that healthcare worked like Amazon, Uber, uh, Chick-fil-A, uh, all these places where you do feel like you are a consumer that's being listened to. And they would say something like, I wish it worked like Uber so that I could fill in the blank. You know, it was either about like compare prices or click on it on my phone, um, be able to give ratings that actually impact, uh, you know, the if it's not safe or, you know, you have a voice through this app or, you know, Chick-fil-A, it's open 
not open on Sundays, but like it's, you know what you're getting. I like the chicken. I like the fries. I know what I'm getting. Um, and so the customer service, the customer, customer service. service, exactly. Venice, I'm sure this is getting you super excited and amped up about how do we change the healthcare system, you know, and so people are better patients. I, I bet you have a different way of thinking about that is my hunch. Yeah. I always ask these questions to myself, probably not helpful, but I think about like, who, why are we trying to like people that work in the healthcare space, like tech, um, in various industries and let me disclaimer, this is no, you know, knock on any of them, but why are you trying to innovate and change something? Why is this latest technology needed? And ultimately, who are you, what are you trying to solve for and who are you trying to solve it for? Do we ask ourselves those questions? And in the process, have you talked to those who that you're trying to solve it for, right? Um, I feel like a lot of times we miss the mark on who we are looking to solve these things for. Like, are you trying to be the first to create, the first to innovate, the first to put this thing out? Um, for and, and what's your intention behind it, right? Often I feel like in the day-to-day, it's easy for people to get caught up on this latest, greatest new thing. And you forgot about who and where this change is supposed to happen or, 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 or gonna be most effective, i.e. you forgot to talk to the people and ask them what they want. Because if you did, I feel like the healthcare system wouldn't be working the way that it is kind of to the point of, is it working as it is designed to, or is it fundamentally broken? I think there's a little bit of both. But what if all of the industries kind of took a step back and said, well, what are the people calling for? Take a little bit of time to get that feedback or create a feedback loop to see how you can both create, innovate, implement with the people in mind you can still also make money, but what you've also done is created trust and buy-in so people don't feel like they've been had, which in a lot of instances we always hear, right? Like, well, how are you coming at me? Or there's a reason people distrust the system because they don't feel like there's anything in it for them. What if we right-size that so that everybody wins? You create more trust in the system. People are more inclined to get the healthcare they need, they can trust it. They can know that it's going to be there. They know it's going to meet their needs. They It was presented in a way that they could understand and digest it. And you charge, you create a funding structure that they can pay for it and everybody wins. It sounds great in theory, I know, but what we have forgotten, I feel like in, in all that we're trying to do is we've forgotten about the people. And that's what we really, really strive to do and keep at the center of what USF Care does. Going back to the virtual care um, conversation we, we just had, we listen to people first, but we also embed them in the policy recommendations. And so when we make something up, it's not that, oh, we had this bright idea. This is literally coming from our data and coming from um, you know, what we've heard in the field so that we can start to right-size that process and making sure that we're creating policy from the bottom up, we're creating solutions from the bottom up and not from the top down and not to perpetuate the cycle. Yeah, and I would just say to the to the folks listening and who are really at the vanguard of the delivery of healthcare in a new way, it's actually really powerful and fun to engage the general public or your cust- your very immediate customers 
on their experiences. I mean, you got to make sure that you have the right person doing it who can build that trust and that you actually are going to take their listenings and their learn your learnings and bring that into how you deliver care. But it is, it's amazing. It, it, Venice and I talk about all the time when one of us comes back from talking to people, talking to communities, you learn so much and you learn depths that you can't get from a survey. Like our, for instance, when we talk to people about satisfaction, we use that all the time in healthcare. And it turns out it is the low bar. It doesn't mean anything to people, but we tout it that people have satisfied with their, you know, becoming to this hospital or to this provider or with their insurance, you get the richness of what you find. And if you are in it, like Benna said, for the reasons of delivering care that people want, they will be quote unquote better patients, but they will be in a system or in an experience that that meets their needs. And it's really fulfilling to hear that and to engage. Uh, again, you have to have an expert help because you can do more damage, but to engage and then bring that back into your strategic planning, bring that back into how you think about everything from marketing. Are you using the word value to the experience? Are you cohabitating with the other providers that people need to see after they have their annual physical and then they can go next door and have the person, the podiatrist look at their foot. Like you get all this richness if you engage in this way. And I'll just say it's so fulfilling to really understand what's working and what's not. And I love finding out what's not working because then you get to fix it. So the people that listen to this, Eric, I know have like amazing platforms for change. And I would really urge them to consider how they can do this sort of this listening and engagement if they are serious about embedding that into how they think about their change. Well, I, I can just tell, you know, Natalie and Venice, you are deeply passionate about this work. And wow, I mean, it, it is so amazing to hear about how you're harmonizing voices to unite the power of one and people-centered change and, you know, healthcare transformation. And as I said earlier, it's one of the biggest challenges of our generation. I mean, we have to create uh, a more effective, affordable, more equitable, higher quality healthcare system. I just can't thank you enough as a fellow leader in this movement, going about the, the business of engaging our communities and important stakeholders to influence and impact policy changes that are going to, you know, transform care delivery as we know it. And, you know, and I, and I share in your optimism and, you know, for our listeners out there who are learning about your organization for the first time, I mean, what can they do to support your work and, and learn more about all the great things that you're doing? Yeah, well, thank you for that, Eric. And this has been awesome to be on this this podcast um, and have this conversation with you. And you have such depth, the depth of the questions you're asking has been really refreshing. I, you know, unitedstatesofcare.org is a website where you can find out about our work. Um, we have specific, you know, quote unquote, hubs for our value-based care work and what we call, now what we call patient-first care, um, as well as Braidwood, like I talked about other policy areas. I am more and more prolific on LinkedIn and, and folks can follow follow along there. Um, we also are a nonprofit. And so if there are companies or organizations or individuals that are interested in financially supporting and partnering with our organization, we'd love to hear from you. And, you know, one of the things that you brought up, Eric, was talking about healthcare in a different way. And we hope that through our, through kind of really immersing yourself in what we find from our listening work, you can talk to people, be a part of like this narrative change that's necessary to drive more systemic change. And, and, you know, like we said, you know, like how to embed people into your process. And um, we'd love to, to learn more about how folks are doing that and, 
there are communities that you know Venice can be a part of talking to and, and listening to. We're always looking for really trusted community-based organizations that want to engage their their people, their patients in the right way. And so I think there's a lots of different ways to to follow along and to be involved and um, you know keep working towards making healthcare more affordable, coverage more dependable, care more personalized, and healthcare system that's easy to understand and navigate. Well, I learned so much today and, uh, you know, I think I may need to change the podcast to the race to patient first care. You know, this is a, <laughs> so eye-opening to see, you know, to learn about the language and how important that matters. And, you know, again, thank you, Natalie and Venice for joining us uh, this week on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Well, Eric, thanks for everything you do and, and for having us on. It's It's a great platform for us to be able to share this work. Really appreciate it.